join me in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we lift up our youth to you this morning who are headed down to beach camp. We pray that you will use this time to continue to instill in them the word of your truth. We pray for those adults who are going with them this week, that they will have all that they need to serve these young people well as they seek to lead them in your ways. And while we want these youth to enjoy their time at the beach and all of the fun things that they will have the opportunity to do, uh, what we want most of all is for them to enjoy you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would allow them to make it uh, uh, to their destination unharmed and return back to us at the end of the week. But in all things, your will be done. Father, we also give you thanks now uh, for the Supreme Court ruling and the reversal of Roe v. Wade. And we give thanks anytime we see justice aligning with your definition of justice. And yet we know that the law is not all that is needed for your people to glorify you. What is truly needed is a heart change and repentance through the gospel of Jesus. So while we celebrate the righteous decision made, we pray that we would graciously seek to lead others to the gospel that they might understand why we celebrate such a decision. Let us seek to bring peace in so much as it depends on us for the sake of your glory and for your name. Now, Lord, bless us as we open up your word. May we delight in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of our text. It is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So there's a, a show that I oftentimes like to watch on the History Channel, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this show. Uh, it's about a pawn shop in Las Vegas, uh, and it's a family-owned pawn shop, and people basically bring in items to this pawn shop, either looking to sell or pawn their items, and usually they're just looking to sell the items so that they can get some cash. Uh, and one of the cool things about the show is that it actually uh, kind of gives you the backstory of the items that are coming into the shop. Uh, so that you kind of get a history of these items and you get an idea of why it is that it's valued at what it's valued at. What, whatever it is they're trying to sell it for, like you get an idea of why might it be worth that amount of money. And so one of the uh, episodes that I was watching, one of the segments in the show, was about a championship ring from the 2006 Miami Heat. And uh, so the, the man brought this ring in, the championship ring, and you could tell the owner of the store was getting a little bit excited because championship rings don't make their way on the, the public market very often. And if they do, they can be worth a whole lot of money. Uh, and they usually don't make it to the public market because most of these athletes have a lot of money and they don't need to sell their ring. And this is kind of their pride and joy is this championship ring. And so he's getting kind of excited. He's like, okay, how much do you want for this championship ring? And the man says, $20,000. 
And Rick's, Rick's like, okay, uh, that, that could be a good deal. I don't know, we need to kind of do some research on this ring. So he starts asking some questions about this ring and come to find out that this ring was not actually one of the players, but it was issued to one of the trainers of the team. And so in Rick's mind, he's starting to see the value of this ring start to plummet and says, you know what, it's, it wasn't actually one of the players' rings. If it had been one of the players or the stars, I could have gotten a lot of money for it, but as it is, I'll give you $9,000 for this ring. And the man didn't like that too much. He said, I can't do that. And he ended up walking out of the store. Well, a few hours later, he comes walking back in. He says, you know, I thought it over. $9,000 seems pretty good. I'll go ahead and take that. So Rick writes him up, gives him the $9,000 for the ring. And occasionally, uh, this show will do updates on the items that they've bought. Uh, and at the time that they did the, uh, the update on this item, the ring was still for sale in the case. Why? Because nobody wants to spend more than $10,000 on a ring that wasn't even owned by one of the players. They want the real deal. They want the one that was owned by the stars of the team. By contrast, Julius Irvin of the 1974 uh, Brooklyn Nets auctioned off his ring not too long ago uh, for close to half a million dollars. So you can see the direct relation between the worth of the ring being who actually owned the ring. And in many ways, we as believers in Christ are like these championship rings. That our worth and our value, our eternal worth and value, is directly related to who God is and that we are His, that we are His possession. And as championship rings point to the athlete and say, look at this amazing thing that this athlete has accomplished, look at this feat that they've done, we are to point to God and say, look how amazing of a God He is. Look at this amazing thing that God has done. He has changed my life. He has made me into the image of Christ. And of course, we understand that we are to shimmer and sparkle like these rings by God's definition of how we are to shimmer and sparkle, not by our own definitions, not by the world's definitions. You guys may have heard of a man named Kari Willis um, just in, in recent news. He played safety for the Indianapolis Colts, and he just recently retired. He was a starter for the team, making millions of, of dollars uh, as a starter for the Indianapolis Colts playing safety. And yet he retired, and he says this, with much prayer and deliberation, I have elected to officially retire from the NFL as I endeavor to devote the remainder of my life to the further advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am both humbled and excited to pursue the holy call that God has for my life, which brings me much joy and purpose. It seems that this young man understands that there is a greater thing than pursuing our own championship rings, and it's being God's championship ring. That brings us to our main point today. If our eternal worth and identity is not found in Christ and being His to the praise of His glory forever, then we will continue to find our worth and value in fleshly passions which lead to eternal death. So let's go ahead and jump into our text here. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So the first thing I want us to do here is ask the question, who is the you that Peter is speaking of? We need to understand, okay, who is he talking about? Who is he calling a royal priesthood and a holy nation and a people for his own possession? Uh, what, who, who is he talking about? Well, you know, we've seen it all through Peter, but these titles that he gives, these, this chosen race and priesthood and holy nation, these are titles that were actually given to the people of Israel back in Exodus Chapter 19, verse 3 through 6. Let me read that text for us so that we can draw this connection here. 
While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if indeed you obey my voice and keep my commands, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the uh, words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so we see these, these very titles that Peter's using here, speaking to the church, the same titles that were given to Israel in the Old Testament. But we need to notice the, the conditional aspect that's here within this text. Because God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be these things. And we know that much of ethnic Israel did not obey. Much of ethnic Israel was not obedient uh, to what God had commanded. But God has always kept for himself a remnant within Israel. A remnant that actually believes and is obedient to the call that God has given. But also Peter here is bringing in the Gentiles, isn't he? That he's speaking predominantly to a Gentile people in this letter. And so we see that he's grafting in the Gentiles into these titles, into these titles that were given to Israel. And he's saying, I'm speaking to you, Gentile believer. Amen. Al Mohler comments on the connection between these two texts. He says this, What is most striking is the application of these honorable titles regarding the Old Testament Israel to an audience that is largely Gentile. Even more striking is that the wording from Exodus 19.6 appears in the context where Israel is consecrated as God's covenant people at Mount Sinai. In other words, Peter implicitly declares that believers in Jesus, whether Gentile or Jew, are those who now bear the role of ancient Israel. It is this identification of Christians as the true people of God that allows Peter to apply these Old Testament texts as he does. Though ancient Israel had the status of being God's chosen people with the purpose of declaring God's praise, they failed to honor God appropriately. Now, however, God has chosen people who give God the praise that he is due. And this isn't replacement theology. The church does not replace Old Testament Israel. No, the church is grafted in to Israel. Okay, so we're not talking about replacement theology here. We're talking about we are Israel. These titles are for us who believe in Christ. And we've seen this all throughout the book of Peter so far. We saw it right there in Peter's introduction in 1 Peter 1.1, to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the you here is those who, uh, who God has caused to be born again, 1 Peter 1.3, the you is those who love Christ, 1 Peter 1.8, those who have tasted that the Lord is good, 1 Peter 2.3, those who come to Christ, 1 Peter 2.4, those who believe in Christ, as we saw Last week in 1 Peter 2, 7, the honor is for you who believe in Christ, the cornerstone. It is both Jew and Gentile who believe in the name of Christ. And the second thing I want us to see here is that Peter says you are these four things now if you're a believer in Jesus. Not you will be these things. You are these things now. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. So let's break these down a little bit and go through each one of these individually because the more that we actually focus on our identity in Christ and the things that he says that we are because of him and his work, the more the things of this world and the fleshly desires of this world will fade and they won't be as 
desirable for us. So let's concentrate on what he says that we are. One, he says, you're a chosen race. And this word race here is not uh, the, the term that is, we typically think of it, it, dealing with skin color and ethnicity. The term here is actually genos. And it's where we get our words uh, generation or uh, genetics or, uh, you know, it's, it's our origin. Where, where do we come from? And what Peter wants us to have in mind here is really that there are two races. There is the human race, which we were all born into under Adam, and that we all have our origin from Adam, but we were born in sin in Adam. And then there's a second race. What is that race? It's the race of Christ. That if, if you've been born again, you are born into a new lineage, that you are born into Christ, and what is true of him is now true of you. And so that's the two races that Peter wants us to have in mind here. And he's basically saying you are a chosen race, that you were chosen to be born again in Christ, to be made a new creature. Why were you chosen, though? Why were you chosen? Well, we can definitively say it's not because of anything good in us. There was nothing in us that was worthy to be chosen. And we oftentimes think that way. We, we kind of get it backward. And I was actually out in my yard a couple of weeks ago, and I was limbing up some trees. And the whole goal of limbing up trees in your yard is so that when you go under the tree with your mower, you don't get gouged in the eye with the branches, right? Uh, and additionally, you want your tree to be nicely shaped and, and well manicured. Uh, but you have to be careful when you start limbing up your trees because if you take too much off, you end up with a Charlie Brown tree, right? You've got you to be very careful and you've got to look, oh, is this limb over here, is that desirable for me or not? If it's not, I need to get rid of it. If it's desirable, I need to keep it. But maybe some of those branches, like maybe there's something useful to it, so you don't want to take the whole thing. But we start to think about God's election, uh, electing us like that. We start to think, well, there, he looked down the corridors of time, and he saw that there was something useful in me or something useful in you, and, and that's why he chose us. And that's not the way the Bible talks about God's election. That God says that there was nothing desirable in us. That if we start to think that way, then what we're really doing is we're denying the doctrine of total depravity. That we were dead in our sins and hostile toward God and unable to please God. But God in his great mercy and great grace, because of his own choosing, decided to choose a people for himself to give him glory. The doctrine of uncondition, an unconditional election is a beautiful doctrine for this reason. It's the only way that we who love Christ can look at another who doesn't love Christ and not become prideful about the fact that we do. Because we know that God could have just as easily given us over to our desires and we would have never loved him. But God changed our heart and he gave us a new taste buds for him and he has given us new life by his own doing, not because of anything in us, not because of uh, any type of love that we had for him, because we hated him. But God in his grace has changed us. Paul reinforces that our calling should eliminate pride. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were power, powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, 
boast in the Lord. We are a chosen race by grace and grace alone. The second thing that Peter says that believers in Christ are is a royal priesthood. But I think we need to kind of unpack what is a priest, right? Because it's going to look different between Old Testament and New Testament. Because Old Testament priests were those who interceded on behalf of Israel, and they were the only ones who were allowed kind of into the Holy of Holies, if you will, to, to intercede. They were the ones who were making the sacrifices for the people. And these were some of the qualifications of an Old Testament priest. You had to be a male. You had to be descended of Aaron. Had to be between the ages of 30 and 50 years old. Had to be unblemished, meaning no spot, uh, no, no lame or, or blindness. Uh, had to have untrimmed beard with well-trimmed hair, but not shaven. Must be dressed for the occasion by wearing the holy garments. Some of the duties of the priests were that they were to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord had spoken to them by Moses. They were to continually sacrifice animals to the Lord as well as make special sacrifices such as on the Day of Atonement once a year. And they were to burn incense to the Lord and only incense that was authorized by God. But something changed in the New Testament, didn't it? Something has happened because Peter says that you are a priesthood. You, believer, are a priest. How can this be? Well, the answer, of course, is in Christ Jesus. That Christ Jesus fulfilled the role of the great high priest. He is the one who went into the Holy of Holies for us, and he perfectly fulfilled the law for us. And now he says that we are priests. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great, high pri uh, great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is what Jesus has done for us. The, the Holy of Holies, which was once off limits to the people of Israel, Jesus has now opened that up, and now we have direct access to God. We can go into the Holy of Holies. We can approach the throne of God, which was once off limits to us. And now we, believer in Jesus Christ, are priests. Amen. I was actually talking to Gabriel and Emma. You know, they were with us a couple of weeks ago, and they're going to be missionaries in Romania. And they were discussing some of the difficulties that they're going to have there. And one of the difficulties that they're going to have as they're taking the gospel into Romania is that Romania is Eastern Orthodox. And the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, really uh, is under more of that Old Testament mindset, that there are the priests are in the church, and it's the priests who actually do the interpreting of the scriptures. And so uh, even if Gabriel and Emma go and they take a message that aligns with the scriptures— they're going to be dismissed because you're not a priest. My priest says this, and that, that doesn't jive with what he's saying. So they're going to be dismissed because not every individual is viewed as a priest. And unlike what we do within the Protestant church, is we say that the scriptures interpret the scriptures. Right? And so we have all been made priests, and the job of interpreting the scriptures is all of our jobs, but we let the scriptures interpret the scriptures. We don't need a priest to do that for us. Peter doesn't just say that we are priests, he says that we're a priesthood, and this entails a communal aspect, that this priest role that we serve is not something that's to be done in isolation. You may hear people say that, well, I, uh, you know, I don't go to church, but I worship God at home, I worship out in the wilderness, wherever it might be, and it's true in some sense that we can worship God from anywhere, but we've been called to be a priesthood together, 
And there's certain actions that we are to be doing together, and this is actually the way that we are to perform within this priesthood. And this is exactly how Jesus says the world will know that we are his disciples, is that when we're loving each other together in this way and operating in this priesthood together. How can you love the people of God if you're not around the people of God? How can you serve one another and teach one another and correct one another and intercede for one another, encourage one another, and point one another to Christ if you're not in the presence of the people of God? You can't. And Peter here is saying that you are a a royal priesthood. You're to do this with one another, and this is a communal event. Our third sub-point here is this. We are priests unto God for his glory, first to each other, and then to the world. So as we get it right amongst ourselves and we're serving each other well, then when we go out, there's something about us as a people that looks glorious to the world, that they see there's something different about us and they want to know more about what that is. These things, by the power of the Holy Spirit, create a priesthood that puts on display the glories of God in us. And when God does this work in his people, then the priesthood is to the unbelieving world. So it's when we function well together that we, we can then go and be better priests to the world. Max Stiles, uh, in his book Evangelism, he kind of encapsulates this, uh, this kind of evangelistic culture that we need to have amongst ourselves. And while he doesn't use the term priesthood or priest, it really uh, encapsulates what I'm talking about here. He says this, I long for a church that understands that it, the local church, is the chosen and best method of evangelism. I long for a church where Christians are so in love with Jesus that when they go about their regular time of worship, they become an image of the gospel. I long for a church that disarms with love, not entertainment, and they live out the countercultural confidence in the power of the gospel. I long for a church where the greatest celebration happens over those who share their faith, and the heroes are those who risk their reputations to evangelize. I yearn for a culture of evangelism with brothers and sisters whose backs are up to mine in the battle, where I'm taught and I teach about what it means to share our faith. And where I see leaders in the church leading people to Jesus, I want a church where you can point to changed lives, where you can see people stand up and say, when I came to this church two years ago, I didn't know God, but now I do. I long to be a part of a church culture like that, and I bet you do too. All right, so what he's saying here is this, as, as we are... Uh, this priesthood together, as we're properly functioning as a priesthood together, then we, we more accurately display the glories of God to the world, and we are, become a priesthood to the world. The final things to note here about the priesthood is that uh, we see Peter doesn't say that we're just a priesthood. He says you're a royal priesthood. Why does he use this term royal? Well, it's because we are, king, we are uh, priests under the king of kings, the, the Lord of lords. That's who we are priests of. In addition, he says that we are kings. The the scriptures talk about us as being kings, of course, under the rulership of the ultimate king, which is Christ, but we are kings. And it may not feel like we are kings now, but we are beginning to rule over sin because of the Holy Spirit within us. And one day we will have our enemies put under our feet. And just because we're not treated as kings now, let me remind us that Jesus was no less a king while he was being crucified on the cross. It just wasn't yet realized by those who were crucifying him. The same is true of us. The day is coming when the whole world will know that we are kings, though they may not know it now. Third, Peter says that we are a holy nation. We, of course, already looked at this back in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. 
It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, there, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says you, sh- you need to be holy. But here, in chapter 2, Peter says you are a holy nation. So which is it? Do you need to be holy, or are you holy? And, of course, the answer is yes, that we are positionally holy before God, that, that when God looks at us, he sees all of the righteousness of Christ, he sees all the, the holiness of Christ, and that is applied to us who believe in him, and then out of that positional holiness, then we are to be practically holy out of thanksgiving for what he's done for us and what he's doing in us, and we give him all the glory when we are obedient because we know that it's him who's caused that obedience within us. And the second thing I want us to note here is that he is speaking to Jew and Gentile here when he says that you are a holy nation. He doesn't say two nations. He says you are a holy nation. Number four, the last thing here that Peter acknowledges in verse 9 is a people for God's own possession. A people for God's own possession. In fact, the KJV, I like that uh, rendering because it says a peculiar people. (laughs) We're a peculiar people. There's something different about us. But What I really want to focus on here is that we were bought by the blood of Christ, and that is what gives us our worth, and that is what gives us our value. And in some sense, all people in all things are owned by God. Yes, he owns all things. He owns believer and unbeliever, but there is a specific way in which he bought us with his blood. He atoned for our sin. He redeemed a people for himself. But more than that, more than just our justification being bought by God, Have you ever considered the fact that he bought our sanctification? That he bought our purification? He bought our obedience? Titus 2.14 says this, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Isn't that amazing? He bought our obedience. He bought our cleansing. He bought our being formed into the image of Christ. Nothing else in all of creation was bought or purchased by the blood of Christ in the way that Jesus bought us. When we buy things, we buy them because they are valuable. But Jesus bought us when we were headed for the trash heap. And with his blood, he gave us infinite and eternal value. We are his possession, and this is where our our worth is found. Well, why does Peter say that you have been made these four things, a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession? He says there in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. This is the purpose of him making us these things. And, And I just want to reiterate that it's him who made us these things. We did not make ourselves these things. No, he made us these things that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. And we do this in two ways, two ways in which we proclaim his excellencies. One is with words. And the others with actions, right? With words, we do it through the proclamation of his law and the gospel. As we did this morning, you know, we read through our, the law and the gospel because we want to know what God demands of his people, how Christ has met those demands for us, and now how do we actually honor him by being obedient out of thanksgiving. But we also do it with actions, right? We do it with obedience to Christ. We know in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
We do it with actions, by observing all that he has commanded. And John Piper actually tells the story of a man named Doug Nichols, who, d who did this really well at, at one point in his life, about uh, proclaiming the excellency of, of God with actions. Uh, Doug Nichols was a missionary in India back in the 1960s. And while he was there on mission, he got tuberculosis. And he was sent to a sanitarium there in India. And it was filled with other individuals who were sick. Uh, and he was actually trying to give out gospel tracts of the Gospel of John while he was there, but nobody would receive his tracts. Nobody wanted anything to do with his tracts because they just thought that he was a rich American, and they had this attitude of, what are you doing taking up one of our beds, you rich American? And they didn't really speak his language anyway, and so he was just kind of being shunned. Well, one night, Doug woke up very sick with, a, with his cough, and he couldn't sleep. And he noticed an old, frail man trying to get up out of bed, but he couldn't get out of bed because he was so sick. And he ended up going to the bathroom on himself. And the stench filled the room. And the nurse came in and actually smacked him because she was going to be the one who had to clean it up. She got him all cleaned up. They went on about their day. The very next night, Doug woke up about the same time with his cough. And he noticed the same man trying to get up out of bed again. And he couldn't do it. So Doug, even though he himself was very frail and sick, got up out of bed, went over, picked the man up, took him to the bathroom, which was nothing more than a hole in the ground, let him do his thing, took him back to bed, and the man kissed him on the cheek. The next day, people were coming to him all day long asking for his tract. You see, Doug had with his actions driven people to the gospel, and that should always be the purpose of our actions. We don't just pull up shy with the actions so that people will think well of us. No, we always want to be driving them to the gospel, which says we're a miserable people, but God has saved for himself a people to worship him and to proclaim his excellencies, and that's exactly what Doug did. Finally, there in verse 9, Peter says that we who believe were called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And this is a reference to God's effectual grace, that when God calls, something happens. God doesn't just give this, he, there is a gospel call that is for the ears that, that people hear, but the, the effectual call is within here, right? It actually changes people. And Tom Schreiner talks about this. He says, this is a, a description, this being called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is a, a description of their conversion, employing the language of Genesis 1 where God utters the word and light springs into being, pushing back the darkness. Paul uses the same picture of conversion in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where God shines in the heart of the people, giving them the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The calling described here in Peter is effectual. Just as God's word creates light, so God's call creates faith. Calling is not a mere invitation, but is performative, so that the words God speaks become a reality. The beauty and glory of the new life is conveyed by the image of light in contrast to darkness. Hence, Peter identifies the light as marvelous. This is the regeneration that was talked about in 1 Peter 1.3, way back a few weeks ago, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is what has changed our taste and our affections for Christ, where once we wanted nothing to do with him, where once the gospel was the stench of death to us, but now the gospel is life. And that's because of the work that God did in us, changing our hearts. Let's move on to verse 10 and 11, and I've combined these two 
verses together because I think in verse 10 you get the indicative and then verse 11 is the imperative which Gabriel talked about a few weeks ago. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. All right, so what are these passions of the flesh that Peter's talking about here? Well, the passions of the flesh are, we're given kind of a, a really long list, actually, in Galatians chapter 5. Let me run through some of those for us. These are some of the obvious ones, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. These are some of those obvious fleshly desires, we're more, more aware of these ones, but let me give us an example of maybe a more subtle one, and this is one that I caught myself in uh, just this past, you know, probably month or so. Uh, for those of you who know me, you know that I really like boating. I like being out on the lake, and uh, so I've got an older 2005 boat that uh, I take my family out there. I don't know if they like being out there as much as I do, but I drag them along with me, and I have a good time out there, and lately I've been thinking about maybe getting a little bit bigger boat, you know, a little bit nicer boat. And uh, what I've found in, in that desire is that I'm waking up and the first thing I'm doing in the morning is open up Facebook Marketplace and I'm scrolling for that next boat. I'm looking, you know, and maybe uh, 30, 45 minutes goes by and I've been looking for that, that new shiny boat. And that's typically a time when I would reserve for opening the Word of God and focusing on the promises of God and all that I am in Christ. And so you can see how really quickly my eye can be taken off of Christ, and if I'm not careful, it may end up snowballing and lead to some of these other fleshly desires that I just mentioned. And so we have to be very careful with these things and be aware of those more subtle desires of the flesh. And how do we abstain from the desires of the flesh? Well, we saw it right there in verse 10. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's by focusing on the mercy and the grace that we've received in Christ, and we focus on the cross of Christ, and that makes the other things begin to fade. Amen. And they're not as attractive to us. Nothing wrong with getting a boat, but don't let it ruin your communion with God. One pastor put it this way, getting better is better than not getting better, but there's a better way of getting better than by focusing on getting better. Let me slow it down because it's a lot of betters. Getting better is better than not getting better, but there's a better way of getting better than by focusing on getting better. What he's saying there is if we're just focused on all of these fleshly desires, that's not the power to overcome those fleshly desires. We need something with power. Who, who's the one with the power? It's Christ. Christ is the one that we need to focus on. It's the cross of Christ and all that it has accomplished for us. And as we focus on that, then the other desires, the fleshly desires begin to fade away. And I want to take us back to the main point of the sermon. If our eternal worth and identity is not found in Christ and being His to the praise of His glory, then we will continue to find our worth and our value in fleshly passions which lead to eternal death. Paul put it this way, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. We have to be very careful with these little subtle things because they want to wage war on our soul. Finally, we come to verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify, glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, 
This is a little bit interesting because it's somewhat paradoxical to Matthew chapter 6. Because here Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they'll see what you're doing. You want them to see your righteous deeds and give glory to God. But in Matthew chapter 6 he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, you have received your reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you, your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward, will, will reward you. So, what's going on here? Is this a, a contradiction? No. We know that the scriptures never contradict themselves. It is a paradox, but it really has to do with motive. Why are we doing the things that we're doing? Are we doing the things that we're doing so that people will think well of us and just think that we're good people? Or are we doing the things that we're doing because we have a great God and we want to point to the glory of who he is and what he's done in us? If your goal in doing righteous deeds is ultimately so that others will see what you are doing and think well of you, you are practicing self-righteousness. But if your goal in doing righteous deeds is for the purpose of of making much of God and giving him the credit for anything good in you, while at the same time proclaiming your own weakness and depravity, then you have a God-honoring, gospel-driven motive. So we must keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, which is the unbelievers, so that they will see and they will proclaim his excellencies. We're always seeking to drive them to the law, always seeking to drive them to the gospel. The last thing we see here in verse 12 before we close the world will speak evil of us. As we are obedient to what Christ demands of us, they will speak evil of us. But Jesus will set all things straight when he returns. And that's a hope that we can bank on. He's coming back. Let me close with this. First to the unbeliever and then to the believer. Unbeliever, do you want to have everlasting purpose and everlasting value? There are a billion things that you could dedicate your life to. Billions. But only one has lasting purpose. Only one has lasting value. And that's serving Christ. Believer, I give you the same charge because we're so prone to forgive it, or forget it. We forget this every day. That this is our purpose. That this is our worth. Let us fix our eyes on the cross of Christ and all that it has made us. As we consider that we were chosen by God, not because of anything good in us, but completely out of his good grace. May that stir us up to give grace to others that we might make known the grace of God to the world. Let us ponder our great high priest, Jesus, who perfectly performed that role for us to make us priests to one another and to the world. And as we reflect on the fact that God would have been perfectly just to wipe every nation from the face of the earth due to our sin, due to our rebellion, let us rejoice Rejoice that he has chosen to make a sinful people like us into a holy nation. And finally, let us marvel in the reality that Christ purchased us for himself by his blood, giving us eternal value. We who hated him have been bought by him and given everlasting worth and everlasting purpose as his own people. It's thinking through these things and meditating on such grace that we will, by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, proclaim his excellencies the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light to the world. Let's do it well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. Your grace is so good.